I am but a man and I can err. Only let my errors be proven by scripture. And I will revoke my work and throw my books into the fire. You have not answered the question. You, Martin Luther, will not draw into doubt those things which the Catholic Church has judged already. Things that have passed into usage, right, and observance. The faith that Christ, the most perfect lawgiver, ordained. The faith the martyrs strengthened with their blood. You wait in vain for a disputation over things that you are obligated to believe. Now give your answer. Yes or no? Will you recant or will you not? Since your majesty and your lordships desire a simple reply, I will answer. Unless I am convinced by scripture and by plain reason, and not by popes and councils who have so often contradicted themselves, my conscience is captive to the word of God. To go against conscience is neither right nor safe. I cannot, and I will not, recant. Here I stand. I can do no other. We uh, started last week a series that's running for uh, six weeks in total, so five more weeks, called Reformation. And that's because if you weren't here last uh, Sunday, this Tuesday just gone, Halloween, is in fact the 500th anniversary of one of the most important moments in church history, when Martin Luther, who you saw up there in the video, uh, nailed onto the door of his local church, which functioned as the community notice board, 95 statements about errors that he felt that the Catholic Church was producing. And most church historians say that that key moment on the 31st of October, 1517, was really the launch and the beginning of what we now know as the Protestant Reformation. And so last week, if you weren't here, I walked through and really retold the story of Martin Luther. So if you weren't around and you're not familiar with that, then I'd suggest you jump online and actually maybe watch that message and just get a sense of, of the storyline here, 
um, to, to this guy's life, and not only his life, but the legacy of many other men and women around that time as well who were part of this, this reformation, this new movement to come back to the Bible and rediscover uh, the Gospels. Uh, so what we are doing over these next five weeks, um, having looked at Luther's story, is we're looking at what are called the five solas, the five key foundation points that the Protestant church kind of pulled together and said, this is the gospel that we believe has been lost, and this is what we are rediscovering. And so for the next five Sundays, uh, before we jump into kind of the Christmas season and celebration, we are walking through these five key statements about the Protestant Reformation. So we're beginning this morning with what is called sola scriptura, which is Latin, uh, meaning scripture alone. The Reformers called this the formal principle of the Reformation, meaning this is the foundational one. This is why we start with Scripture alone, because this is kind of the foundation on which all of the other solas were to be built. And so today I want to look at what uh, sola scriptura means and what the Bible teaches about that and what the Reformers then said that means for the way we understand God and theology and follow him today. So I want to jump in and look at one key passage of the Bible with you this morning. So if you've got a Bible with you, either the paper one or your phone or iPad, I'd love you to come to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy 3 contains one of the most important passages in the entire Bible about the Bible itself. And I want to look just briefly at what um, the Bible itself says about itself as the Word of God and then look at how the Reformers dealt with that and, and the way they fleshed that out in their world and what that means for us. So uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3 is where we're going to be, and we're just going to be looking at a couple of verses there if you want to pull that up. The core idea today is this. So I want to do it right up front and get it clear as we go. The Bible alone, God's inspired inerrant word, the Bible alone is our final authority. That's what the Reformers meant, that's what Luther meant and others like him when they said sola scriptura, that the Bible alone is our final authority for where we stand. And that's why this event happens that was captured on the video at um, the Diet of Worms, which was a parliament gathering in a city called Worms in 1521. We're going to come back to that moment in a minute because that kind of really captures Luther's belief in sola scriptura. So when we say sola scriptura, when we, mean, when we say the scriptures alone, what we mean is that the Bible alone is God's inspired and inerrant word. The Bible alone is our final authority for everything we believe. So I want us to have a look then at this key passage in 2 Timothy 3 to just see why we believe that, why the Reformers believe that and why we believe that today. So 2 Timothy 3, we're just looking at verses 16 and 17. So let me read them and then let me draw out a few conclusions from them. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is one of the key foundational statements in the Bible about the Bible itself. And there's four key observations that I want to make out of this text really fast. First of all, this passage is saying that the Bible is inspired. Key word, it is inspired, and that means this is God's word. Now, we get the word inspired, we use that as a theological term based on the way that the King James Version originally translated this. The King James translators translated this verse, 
all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And so this doctrine is called the inspiration of Scripture. But in some ways, that's a slightly confusing term. Because when we think of inspired, we can think of a whole different lot of things that have been inspired. For example, um, you can listen to a beautiful piece of uh, music and say that the composer of that music was inspired as they did that. Or you can look at a beautiful piece of artwork and say that the, the artist or the sculptor was, was inspired producing that. You can watch a sporting event and watch a particularly exquisite piece of sporting or athletic ability and say that person was inspired. And that's all a, a beautiful way of describing human endeavor that we admire, but that's not what we mean when we say the Bible's inspired. And so that's why more modern translations of the Bible, like the NIV that we use, or the, the new uh, English Standard Version, the ESV, they translate it more literally. All Scripture is God-breathed, or all Scripture is breathed out by God. Uh, in the original Greek language that the Apostle Paul wrote this letter in, he actually coined a phrase. He put two words together, God and breath. And it's not used anywhere else in the Bible, but the NIV's basically just translated it very literally. Scripture, all Scripture, is God-breathed or breathed out by God. It means that all of Scripture, all of the words of Scripture, these are God's very words. That's what the doctrine of inspiration means, that when we read the Bible, we're not just reading some words that are, are wonderful or helpful or, or that the writers were somehow inspired like other good writers of good literature. It means that the Bible is unique in that it is inspired by God, meaning these are his breathed out words. So Second uh, Peter 1.21 describes how that happened. Prophecy had never had its origin in the will of man, Peter said. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So that the words that are written in the Bible are the very words of God that he, as he drove those authors along, inspired them to write. So an old theologian of almost a couple of hundred years ago now, I think, B.B. Warfield, said the Bible is the word of God in such a way, what we mean by that is when the Bible speaks, God speaks. That's why often we'll use the Bible, another term for the Bible, as the word of God. These are God's very words, is what the inspiration of Scripture means. If that is true, then most theologians then go, therefore, if this is God's word, if this is inspired, then it is also inerrant. Inerrant means it is trustworthy. It means it has no errors in it. And that's because if this is literally God's words, and we trust that God is a perfect God, then his words must be perfect as well. Um, and this is backed up elsewhere in the Bible. For example, Psalm 119, the longest psalm in that book, your righteousness is everlasting and your law is true. A few verses later, all your words are true and your righteous laws are eternal. If this is God's word, then this must be true because God himself is always true. Uh, Numbers 23, God is not a man that he should lie. He's not a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? No. Does he promise and then not fulfill? No. When God speaks, he speaks complete truth. And therefore, if the Bible is God's word, then the Bible is also complete truth and has no errors in it. That's what the word inerrant means. So Martin Luther, once explaining this to someone in a letter, 
um, answered the question, how do we know that the Bible is true? And he said, because we know that God doesn't lie. My neighbor and I, in short, all of us may err, may we get things wrong and we deceive people, but God's word cannot err. So because this is inspired, the reformer said God's word is also inerrant. Third thing is that the Bible, God's word, is transformative. It changes us. It makes us different. That's what um, Paul meant here in the second half of verse 16. It's useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. God's word is alive and it's powerful and it changes who we are. It changes us. So perhaps the classic uh, verse on this in the New Testament is Hebrews 4. The word of God is alive and it's active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Penetrates to the very core of who we are. Dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. The, the word of God is alive and it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So for the writers of the scriptures, because the Bible is God's word, it means it's his very words, it's inspired, it means it's without error, it's inerrant, and it means it changes us, it transforms us. And the reformers took that not only to mean that it changes each of us individually, it transforms our lives individually as we get into God's word and read it and sit under the teaching of it, it also transforms the church as a whole. There's a very famous statement by Luther that explains that. Talking, looking back later in his life on, on the whole Reformation, he said, I opposed indulgences and all the papists, but never with force. In other words, I, ne I never led an army or went into battle to defend all this. He said, I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amsdorf, he liked his beer, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. In other words, Luther said, I never, I never had to go into battle. I never had to lead an army. But I actually had more effect than, than any king or emperor or, or prince heading into battle and, and, and fighting against the pope. I did more damage to the pope by simply preaching and teaching and writing about God's word. Because I unleashed God's word. That's what Luther was saying. At the end of the day, he says, I did nothing. The word did everything. Because God's word has power because of who the author of that word is. It's transformative. Finally, then, verse 17 tells us that the Bible's sufficient. We don't need anything more than what God has given us um, in terms of what it teaches, so that the servant of God, the man or woman of God, verse 17, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In other words, the word is all we need to understand what God wants us to understand about how to live a life for him. It's, it's sufficient. It's enough. Uh, theologian Wayne Grudem, who's a contemporary of ours, he's still alive, in other words, unlike most of the old people that I'm talking about, um, Wayne Grudem says, Scripture contained all of the words of God that he intended his people to have at each stage of redemptive history, as history slowly unfolded, <clears throat> and it now contains everything we need God to tell us for salvation and for trusting him perfectly and for obeying him perfectly. In other words, the, the, the sufficiency of Scripture doesn't, doesn't mean that, that uh, God's revealed everything to us about every single topic. It means God has revealed everything that we need to know about how to live a life for him. It's sufficient for loving him and responding to him by faith and living for him by grace. So these four 
key ideas, this is what the Bible and other verses as well as this one teach about itself, that the Bible is inspired, it's God's own words, therefore it's inerrant, we can trust it, and it is transformative, it changes our lives, and it's sufficient. We don't need anything else apart from what God has given us in his word. That's what scripture teaches about itself. Now, it's worth noting that the Catholic Church believes and endorses three out of those four statements. The Catholic Church, then in Luther's day and today, believes that the Bible is inspired. So the Catholic Church agrees that the Bible is God's written word. The Catholic Church also agrees that the Bible is inerrant, that there are no errors, there's nothing false in it. And the Bible, uh, sorry, the Catholic Church also believes that the Bible is transformative, that God's word changes us. So on that, we're all agreed. Where the Catholic Church differs is at that final point that the Bible is sufficient, because the Catholic Church thinks the Bible actually isn't enough, and we need to add more to it. And that is why the key word in this statement is the word alone. In fact, that's why in all five messages we're going to do as we look at the Reformation, the key word that links all five of them is the word alone. The scriptures alone, Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, God's glory alone. Because the Catholic Church believes in all of those same things without the word alone. The Catholic Church believes and upholds scripture. The Catholic Church believes in worshipping and following Jesus. The Catholic Church believes in God's grace. It believes in the necessity of saving faith. It believes in God's glory. We agree on those. The difference is that the Protestant reformers said, no, it's those things alone. And the Catholic Church says, no, it's those things with some other stuff added on. And that really becomes the crux of the matter. And that's why for the, the Catholic Church, they will endorse three of those four statements, but they won't endorse the idea of sufficiency. So why did the Protestants say alone? And why is that important for us today? Why do we say, as a Protestant church here at Botany Life, sola scriptura, the scriptures and the scriptures alone? What the reformers said was that, that ultimately, if the Bible is inspired and inerrant and sufficient and transformative, as this passage teaches and others like it, that means the Bible stands over everything else. So for Luther and the other reformers like him, the Bible is above church tradition. So the church may have some beliefs, some traditional ideas or beliefs that it teaches, and it may have taught those for thousands of years. But if, that, if those teachings don't measure up to the Bible, then we throw them out. Because the Bible stands above the teaching and tradition of the church. The Catholic Church doesn't agree with that, and still doesn't today. The year before Luther died... Um, when the Protestant Reformation had taken hold and really started to sweep, especially across the north of Europe, the Roman Catholic Church pulled together a church council. It met for almost 20 years, but not continually. It was kind of on and off between those years up there in the Italian town of Trent. And they released their findings from this council. It was called the Council of Trent, and this is what they said about the Bible. This council clearly perceives that this truth and rule, what God has told us, are contained in written books 
and in unwritten traditions, which were received by the apostles or else have come down to us. So this is, the, this is Catholic theology, that what God wants us to know is contained in written books and unwritten traditions. So this next paragraph down, the council accepts and venerates with a like feeling of piety and reverence all the books of both the Old and New Testament, as well as the traditions concerning both faith and conduct. So they're placing them side by side. And that's not only in Luther's day, that's still in our day today. This is the official catechism or teaching of the Catholic Church. This was released in 1995, so this is about 20 years old. But this is like their statement of faith, effectively, for the Catholic Church. The Church does not derive her certainty about all revealed truths from the Holy Scriptures alone. All right, that sentence is aimed directly at Protestants. So that's the Catholic Church being really clear. It disagrees with Protestants. So it does not derive her certainty from the Holy Scriptures alone. Both Scripture, capital S, and Tradition, capital T, must be accepted and honoured with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. So that's the Catholic doctrine, that we have the written Scriptures, and they agree it's inspired and inerrant and transformative. But alongside the written Word of God are the unwritten, meaning not in the Bible, but still true for them, the unwritten traditions and teachings of the church. And the reformers came along and said, you can't do that. Because at the end of the day, what happens when your traditions contradict or go against your scripture? Who wins them? The Catholic Church says, well, they never do. But the reformers said, well, they do. What about purgatory? That's the traditions of the church. It's not in the Bible. And in fact, when you understand the Bible correctly, there can't be a place called purgatory. What about indulgences? And the Catholic Church says, well, that's part of the tradition of the church. And, and the reformers go, but it's not in the Bible. And when you understand grace alone, indulgences don't fit anywhere. And ultimately, what the reformers said is you can't have these two things side by side. In the end, one will trump the other. Using the word trump in the good sense of the word, of course. <laughs> one of those is going to trump the other one. And the problem, the reformers said, is that ultimately what happens in the Catholic Church is if you question anything, they will just say, it doesn't matter if the Bible doesn't say it, tradition says it. And tradition has trump, just trumped Scripture. And the reformers said, no, you can't do that. The Bible is the final authority. The Bible stands over the traditions and teaching of the church. The reformers felt they had Jesus on their side, which is always a good thing when you're in a theological argument. If you can pull Jesus in on your side, you win. Um, this is a famous story in Mark chapter 7. Because in Jesus' day, the religious teachers of Israel, they also had their own traditions that had been cultivated and, and developed by the rabbis over the centuries and passed down alongside the Old Testament. And so there was controversy. The Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? Now, the issue is not hygiene. It's not that the disciples had gone to the toilet and not washed their hands properly afterwards. This is not a hygiene issue. This is a tradition issue. The Old Testament didn't say anything about washing hands. But the traditions that had grown up, the, the, the rabbis' teachings that had been developed through the centuries said that because God is holy, you should wash your hands thoroughly before eating your food. And Jesus went, 
nah, whatever. I don't think God cares about whether you've washed your hands for 20 seconds using the correct soap or not. And so he didn't worry about it in order to his disciples, but it offended the religious leaders because of the traditions of the elders. And Jesus makes this very important, these two statements. You've let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. You nullify the word of God by the tradition that's been handed down. The religious leaders and Pharisees were going, there's the Old Testament, Scripture, and then there's our human traditions, and they stand side by side. And Jesus said, no, because what inevitably happens is your traditions become more important. And actually, it's God's word that's most important. And so the reformers said, we're doing exactly what Jesus said. It doesn't mean we're throwing out the teachings of the church necessarily, it means we're weighing the teachings of the church and bringing them under the Bible. What does the Bible say? And that's, what, that's the final authority. <clears throat> Not only did they say that the Bible is over tradition and teaching of the church, but they said the Bible is over the church. In other words, the church has to come under the authority of the Bible and live according to what the Bible says. The church just can't make its own rules up. Again, this is different. Coming back to the 1995 Catechism. Accordingly, the Catholic Church possesses a tripartite structure of authority. Written scripture, that's the Bible. Unwritten tradition, that's the teachings we've already looked at. And the magisterium. Now, the magisterium in the Catholic theology is the Pope and the bishops of the church who decide what official teaching is in the, in the Catholic Church. Just as three poles of a three-legged stool provide support for whoever sits on it, these three elements provide divine revelation and its authoritative interpretation for the church. So they've already said in that previous quote that scripture and tradition, that's divine revelation. So what, how do we know what God says? Well, he's revealed it in his word, that's written, or he's revealed it in the teachings of the church. That's what God's revealed. Then they add the third leg of the stool, which is the Pope and the bishops, the church leadership, and they provide the authoritative interpretation. So in other words, you have the Bible and you've got the teachings of the church. Well, who decides what they mean? Well, it's the Pope and the bishops. So can Martin Luther read the Bible and say, no, I don't think it says that. No, he's not allowed to do that. He's not a pope or a bishop. He has to shut up, that's the, essentially. And that's what happened in the great debates that Luther faced after he'd nailed those theses on the door in 1517. Um, Catholic theologians started to bait him, because all he, all he argued against in 1517 was, I think, the way that indulgences are being practiced is wrong. He didn't argue against indulgences. He didn't argue against purgatory. He didn't argue about how to be saved. He didn't argue about whether the, it was the Bible alone. He hadn't come to those conclusions yet. He was simply arguing against the way that he felt indulgences were being abused. But he got onto all this other stuff because the Catholic Church, the theologians came and said, you can't argue with that. The Pope has said it's okay. And then he started going, well, if the Pope has said that's okay, what else has the Pope said that I don't agree with? And so over the next two to three years, he and others like him ended up saying, I don't agree with a whole bunch of this stuff. Why? Because it doesn't fit what the Bible teaches. And ultimately, that was the point. Sola Scriptura. 
the Bible alone. The Bible stands above tradition and the teaching of the church. The Bible stands above the church itself. So let's come back to that video that we saw at the beginning. At the parliament in a a German town called Worms, 1521, this is Luther's statement that we just heard him deliver. Unless I'm convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason out of the scriptures, for I do not trust either in the Pope or councils alone, since it's well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves, Luther says, I'm bound by the scriptures I've quoted and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything because to go against one's conscience is neither safe nor right. Here I stand. I can do no other God help. Notice what Luther is saying, positively and negatively. Positively, he's saying scripture. Unless I'm convinced by the testimony of scripture, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted. My conscience is captive to the word of God. So positively, he is saying, no, show me from the Bible. Open the scriptures. This is the authority. Now in the brackets, he's rejecting two things. He says, I will not trust in the Pope. That's the magisterium. That's the third um, pole in the stool. And I will not trust in councils. That's tradition. So what Luther is doing at Worms is he is going, I am not prepared to hear you talk about what the Pope has said or what the traditions say, give me the Bible. Because the Bible stands over the councils and teaching of the church. The Bible stands over the popes and the bishops of the church. It's the Bible alone that has the final and ultimate authority. You want to argue with me? Then open the scriptures and argue with me. And let's look together at what the Bible teaches. So that's the Reformation. That's the sola scriptura, the Bible alone. It is the final authority. The Bible is above tradition. The Bible is above the church. Now, in the next 500 years of history... These are not the issues or battles anymore. There's other things that now come up to take the ultimate or final place of authority in our lives. I want to add three more to what the reformers faced. The third one, which I think is incredibly important for Protestants to hear, is that the Bible is not only above the church, capital C, the Bible is above all church leaders. That means whenever you hear any church leader, preach or talk, whenever you pick up any book written by a Christian author, they come under the word of God. And you judge what they are saying and teaching by God's word alone. That means Brian Tumakey's teaching has to come under the word of God. And if he teaches stuff that is not biblical, he is wrong. It's the same for Chuck Swindoll and Rick Warren. It's the same for me. Anything I say has to be judged against God's word. I am not the final authority. And if you believe stuff just because I say it, that's a bad place to be. You need to hopefully presume that I'm speaking well. (laughs) But I'm not the final authority. God's word is. So whatever I teach and whatever I say and anyone else up here and any other author of any book you read and any other speaker on any podcast you listen to, the final authority is not what we have said, even though we may sound like we're experts. 
The authority is the word of God. Is it in accordance with the word of God? It's incredibly important. Something else that's incredibly important is that the Bible is above human reason. In the next two to three hundred years after Luther came along, a whole new philosophical change happened in the Western world. It's called the Enlightenment. And in the Enlightenment, what became king was human reason. So that what you know what you know because you can reason it out. You are a knowing, careful, thoughtful person. And in the Enlightenment, over the next two or three hundred years after Luther, human reason became king. So what happened is, is that the Enlightenment thinkers, philosophers of the last three or four hundred years came to the Bible and, and read certain parts of the Bible and said, that doesn't seem logical to me. That doesn't seem real to me. I haven't seen it, but someone told, or a few people have told me actually, that on the Sunday program, I think it was this last Sunday, a week ago, uh, Lloyd Gearing was interviewed. He is New Zealand's best known churchman. Well, him and Brian Tamaki. I'll go with Brian Tamaki on that choice every single time. Because Lloyd Gearing is a straight-out liberal theologian. He's been honoured in New Zealand, but he was tried by the Presbyterian Church for heresy back in the 50s or 60s for denying the resurrection of Jesus. If you actually read Lloyd Gearing's writings, what you'll find is he believes virtually nothing of the historic Christian faith. Lloyd Gearing is an Enlightenment thinker. And what the Enlightenment thinkers did, including Gearing, is they come to the Bible and the Bible says Jesus rose from the dead. And these kind of thinkers, including Gearing, go, really, people rise from the dead? I don't think that's reasonable. That makes no sense to me. I don't think we can scientifically verify that. That seems absurd. So I'm not going to believe the resurrection of Jesus. Why? Because it's not reasonable to me. And, and my reasoning capabilities are the ultimate authority. I don't care what the Bible says. I'm judging what the Bible says based on my ability to reason and to think. So the resurrection's gone. Well, so's the Trinity, to be honest. Really? There's one God, and he exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And each of those three persons are fully God, but yet there's only one God. Oh, sorry. I can't get my mind around that. That's gone. It must mean something different to that. And you get to the point where Thomas Jefferson, the third president of the United States, took a pair of scissors and cut out every miracle of the Bible and then got that published as the Jefferson Bible. Why? Well, miracles make no sense. That's, that's not how things really happen in the real world. They're not scientifically verifiable, so they're gone. That is the, the world we've lived in for the past two, three hundred years, where human reason stands above and judges the Bible. And what Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and the other reformers would have said was, not at all. The Bible stands over our human reasoning. Not meaning we put aside human reason, that we don't think critically and think well. But at the end of the day, our human finite minds have to come under and submit to the infinite word of God. Make sense? Final one. Because in the last 50 years, something's changed. The Enlightenment brought in what philosophers and historians now call uh, the modern period or modernity. 
The last 50 years, we've left that behind, and we are now in a post-modern world. You might have heard that phrasing along the way somewhere, post-modernity. Post-modernism says there is no truth, there is no absolute rights and wrongs, and actually whatever you think and feel is true. So there's no big truth out there, which is what the modern world said, that it was all science and reason. Postmodernism is going and says, no, forget that. Whatever you think is true is true. If you think that's okay, then it's okay for you. Don't judge anyone else. Don't force your beliefs on anyone else. That's the cardinal sin. So it's what you think. It's what, how you feel. It's your experience. So that now stands over the word of God. Well, and now that means the church, you can't say anything about, well, this is what the Bible says. Well, who cares what the Bible says? This is what I want to do. This is, this is how I feel. This is my set of beliefs. This is the choices I want to make on how I live my life. Don't tell me what the Bible says, because my desires, my understanding, my feelings, my experience trump the Bible. And Luther and the Reformers would come and say, you can live that way and you can believe that if you want, but that's actually not true. The Bible is the final authority. And that means the Bible judges the choices we make and the experiences we've had and even the feelings that we feel. We need to hear this one more than any of the others because this is the world we live in now. And you and I if we face any temptation at all, is to face the temptation to make our feelings or our experiences be more important than the Bible, what the Bible says. One author I've been reading this week has been really helpful, Matthew Barrett, says, while many Christians would pay lip service to their Bible as their authority and say, yep, no, the Bible alone, he says, functionally, it is our experience that steers the ship. Our spiritual or religious feelings become the grid through which the scripture must be interpreted rather than the other way around. A spiritual feeling takes priority over the Bible. And I think for many of us, that's the biggest danger we face when it comes to scholar scriptura. You and I, unless we've been brought up in a, in a Catholic tradition and so now are having to wrestle with that, if you've been brought up in a Protestant faith or, or just have come to faith within a Protestant church like ours, you're not tempted to feel like the Pope or the teachings of the church are above Scripture, but we're very tempted to fall into this trap. Where we make our feelings or our experiences or what we think sounds right, well, that's how we interpret or that's what we make the Bible want to say. And this can be both positive and negative. Let me give a few examples. A couple of years ago, well, no, actually more, far more than a couple of years, many years ago, I found out that a woman in the church that I was pastoring at the time was having an affair with a married man. And I went and sat down with her and challenged her about what she was doing and, and opened up the Bible and explained that this is adultery. You're not to have an affair with a married man. Sexual intimacy is reserved for marriage between a husband and a wife, and no one else is part of that, and you can't come in and break that. That's, that's sin. And she didn't disagree with my interpretation of the Bible. What she disagreed with was that was the ultimate authority. She didn't put it in those words. What she said was, but I feel happy, and I think God wants me to be happy. 
natural. So I said, no, God wants you to be obedient. But for her, her feelings of contentment and happiness in that sinful relationship trumped the Bible. She chose to stay in the affair and leave the church rather than come under the word of God. Our feelings don't decide what is true. The Bible decides what is true in our lives. That means if we have some sense of prompting from the Holy Spirit, some sense of conviction or some sense of call of God, it has to come back and be measured against the word of God. That also means, by the way, our negative feelings need to be brought under the word of God. It's been many times as a pastor where I've sat with people who are struggling with poor self-esteem or self-image or depression who have said things to me like, I just don't feel like God loves me. And you know what? If that's your feeling, that feeling needs to be brought under the authority of the word of God. Because what the word of God says, if you've trusted in Jesus... If you've been forgiven of your sin and you've been adopted as a son or daughter of God in Christ, you are deeply loved. Whether or not you feel like it. And sometimes our negative feelings, those poor feelings that tell us, well, I'm not loved and I don't feel like God really likes me that much and everything else. No, no, what's true? What's true is in Jesus, you are passionately and deeply loved by a God who loves being your father. That's what's true. So our feelings have to be brought back under the word of God. All of those things come under the Bible because the Bible alone is our final authority. That's what we rest, what we believe on, what does scripture tell us? couple of caveats to this before we're done. Number one, the Bible is above all of these things. The Bible stands above church tradition and teaching. It stands above the church itself and all church leaders. It stands above human reasoning. It stands above our experiences. That doesn't mean we throw any of those things away. Scripture alone, sola scriptura, does not mean only scripture. It means the scripture alone, and there's a very subtle difference. I have heard it said, I've heard in fact it preached, just give me the Bible. It's just the Bible and me. The reformers would say, no, it's not. It's not just the Bible and you. It's the Bible and you in the community of the church. Listening to the historic teachings of the church sitting under the teachers and pastors of the church, using in good human reasoning and proper study methods of the Bible, and tying that into your experience of worshipping and following God. It's not that we reject all of these things. All of these things are good things. But they all come under the Bible, because the Bible is the final or ultimate authority. So Matthew Barrett again. Scripture alone is our final authority. Notice, however, I didn't say that it's our only authority. Sola Scriptura is too easily confused today with nada Scripture. Or solo Scriptura. Those who sing this mantra, nada Scriptura, they believe that creeds, confessions, tradition, church offices carry no authority in the church, but that was not what the reformers said. 
So another writer, Michael Reeves, puts it even better, I think. Scholar scripture does not mean those other things can't inform our theology. The reformers quoted past theologians freely as authoritative guides. They reflected on their experiences. They used their reason. What sola scriptura means is that when we have to choose, there's only one choice we can make. Scripture alone is our ultimate authority. So it's not that we're chucking out 2,000 years now of church history, or in Luther's case, 1,500 years of church history. Luther and the other reformers believed in the ancient creeds. In fact, as we finish our service today, we are going to be singing this I believe, the song that Hillsong has written using the words of the Nicene Creed. Why? Because we stand not only on the shoulders of the reformers, as we saw last week, we stand on the, on the shoulders of believers of 2,000 years and more. So it's not that we throw out the creeds and the, and the teaching of the church for 2,000 years. It's not that we throw the church away and it's just me, God, and my Bible. It's not that we throw out the teachers and pastors of the church. It's just that they all come under the word of God, as our ultimate and final authority. The Bible alone is, is, is our final authority. The second caveat is this. We need to be very careful we understand what this means and doesn't mean. The 500th anniversary of the Reformation kind of came and went last week with very little notice at all from the mainstream media. In the Herald, though, there was one opinion piece by Dr. Paul Moon, who was a professor of history at AUT. And he wrote an article just to kind of bring to people's attention the 500th anniversary of the Reformation and what Martin Luther did. I like the fact that he wanted to honour that. I didn't like his conclusions. He wrote this in the Herald. This is most of the way through. He's already written a lot of stuff. And then he gets towards this towards the end. Through translating the Bible into the language of his compatriots and through insisting that individuals ought to interpret it for themselves. Luther wrested power away from Rome, and he encouraged it to reside in the minds of individuals. In issues of faith, and later even in political matters, the individual, rather than the state, was sovereign. That may be, as we went from the Reformation to the Enlightenment and now to a postmodern world, that may be how it's gone. That's not what Luther was doing. Luther was wresting power away from Rome. That is true. But Luther was not putting that power into the hands of individuals. He was putting that power back in the word. Luther did not take uh, power away from the state, only to give it to you. He dethroned the Pope because he was enthroning scripture. What Moon is saying is our postmodern world. Well, you're in charge. You decide what's true. You figure it out for yourself. You, you make up your own mind about what you believe. That's not Luther. Luther was said, unless I am convinced by the word of God, I will not recant. My conscience is held captive. By the word of God. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help. The call of the Reformation in Luther's life is to stand with him. Not saying that I am king and I get to decide what I believe and what's true, but I live my life under the authority and the power of his word. 
this is our final authority. And we all live under what God has said. That is sola scriptura. The Bible alone is our final authority. As we finish this morning, I want to introduce you really quick to two other reformers. First of them was a guy called John Wycliffe. You had a grow a mean beard. John Wycliffe lived about 150 years before Luther in what is called the pre-Reformation because he had similar ideas to what Luther would come up with 150 years later, but his ideas, it didn't really take off back then. Some of that for historical reasons, some of that, I think, the sovereignty of God, some of that because the printing press hadn't been invented yet, and the printing press is what fueled Luther's ideas. Wycliffe was a Catholic priest who came to believe that some of the practices of the the Catholic Church were wrong. And in particular, he came to fall in love with God's word. At that point, it was only available in the Latin translation called the Vulgate. And so Wycliffe decided to translate from the Latin Bible into an English Bible for the first time. But many of the phrases that would be captured in the King James and in our modern English language came from John Wycliffe. He translated an English Bible and it was circulated and he got some followers, but because there was no printing press, everything was written by hand. And so it didn't really get exposed very far and his impact wasn't huge, but the Catholic Church still didn't like it and he was charged with heresy, but he died before they could go to trial. They went to trial anyway and they found him guilty and so they dug up his body many years later and they burned it at the stake just to prove he was a heretic. But he escaped that fate. Not so another Englishman by the name of William Tyndale. Oh, by the way, Wycliffe Bible translators? Named after him. William Tyndale came along a hundred years later, at the time of Martin Luther. Tyndale was uh, born about ten years after Luther. He was a Catholic priest as well, came to the same conclusions as Wycliffe and Luther. When he was studying at university, is when Luther's writings first started going out, and he started to read some of what Martin Luther wrote, and he was converted to the Protestant faith. He was inspired by Luther doing a translation of the scriptures, now from the Greek language, which had become available into German, and Tyndale decided to do that with English. The problem was that the King of England, King Henry VIII, was still on his first wife and was still a Catholic. And Henry VIII would not allow the Bible in English. And so Tyndale had to flee to Europe. And he went and most probably visited Luther at Wittenberg and looked at his German Bible, and he began the task of translating the Scriptures into English. He finished the English New Testament, but could not finish the Old Testament before the agents, the, the, the men of, of Henry VIII, caught up with him. And he was imprisoned and tried and strangled, and then his body was burnt to the stake. Some years before, he fled England to go and translate the Bible. He got into an argument with a Catholic priest who did not agree with his idea about what the Bible means and that people like you and me should be able to read it for ourselves. And Tyndale said this, I defy the Pope and all his laws about the Bible. And if God spares my life ere many years, I will cause a boy that drives a plough to know more of the scriptures than you do. That was his pledge, and he fulfilled it. 
was reading that statement on Friday afternoon when Mel Palmer walked into my office. She wanted to show me a photo of her youngest son, Jed. He's six, seven. Jed has started to read the Bible uh, in the mornings. Six, seven, Drew, seven. This week, he was reading the book, the letter to Philemon, and he started to highlight the passages that he likes. <laughs> Apart from the opening sentence of Paul to Philemon, Jed liked the rest of the letter. If William Tyndale could see that photo, he would be thrilled. Because Tyndale's dream, and Wycliffe's dream, and Luther's dream, and the dream of every reformer, was that ordinary men and women and boys and girls would know the Scriptures. Because that's our authority. And that is our life. You and I have got so many Bibles. We stand so much in the legacy of these reformers. We have an abundance of translations and Bibles in our lives. Here's my question. Do you know more of the Scripture than that Catholic priest? Because there's no reason not to. If the Scriptures are the inspired an inerrant and transformative and sufficient word. We should be in them and knowing them and loving them because the scriptures and the scriptures alone are our final authority. Jesus, I want to say thank you for the reformers. Thank you for Luther. Thank you for Tyndale. Thank you for John Wycliffe. Thank you for Calvin who translated the word into French, and Huss, who translated it into Czech, and every other person down to the Wycliffe Bible translators in our world today who are laboring to take your Bible to every language group around the world. Thank you for their commitment to your word. Thank you for their willingness to say the Bible alone, Scripture alone. God, we want to confess and acknowledge today, though, that we live in very different times, where now it's not the Bible, it's me. We live in the time of the individual. It's all about my feelings and my thoughts and my desires and my choices. And that bleeds in even to our church and our lives. Would you help us, God, to really believe sola scriptura, and to make everything in our lives, every choice we make, every feeling that we have, every decision that we make, to be clearly and fully under God's beautiful word. We ask it in your name. Amen.